Welcome back to Season 2 of Conversations with Coley Podcast. I'm your host, Nicole Miller, the author of the book series A Through Z Guide to Raising a Good Human, a book series that I wrote to start the communication process between parents and children, starting from birth and why conversation is important. This year, I want to invite you to join me and my guests as we talk about all the subjects and topics that we hear about in everyday life, like human trafficking, grief, relationships, near-death experiences, and all the insights that we can learn from these subjects and topics, and how to look at things from both sides of the spectrum without using bias. Join me and my guests this season as we heat up the summer and the airwaves with our hot topics and we start opening the doors and shaking out the rugs that we have been carrying with us through generations to truly be the change. Welcome back to another episode of Conversations with Coley. Today I'm chatting with Sunny Von Cleveland, the host of The Morning Choice. Sunny is a motivational speaker, mentor, coach, and activist. He also has a book coming out in September. Hey, white boy. Hey, Sunny. Welcome. Hi. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much for being here. Before we get into our conversation, though, I always start with an icebreaker question. It generally has nothing to do with your topic, or maybe it does. I like it. If life was an ice cream flavor, what would yours be? Superman. Ooh. With, with the gum, with the little bubble gum. I like it. Superman bubble it. gum. Because there's <laughs> so many variations and colors and flavors and ups and downs and all kinds of options. Yes, that is perfect. That is perfect. So tell us about yourself. Oh, let's see. Uh, I am a mindset coach, uh, a motivational speaker, an author, a photographer, an actor, a cat cafe owner, um, a musician, and a podcaster, a, a YouTube content creator. Uh, and I'm also a sexual abuse survivor uh, for many years of my life, starting at age five until I was 11 or 12. I was also raped in prison when I first went to prison. I spent 18 years in prison and I went when I was 16 uh, and I failed my first shot at freedom. I was, I did five and a half years. I was released when I was 21. It was a train wreck of a human being and went back when 2004, when I was 23 and spent 12 more years. Uh, and that's me. I love it. Wow. So do you want to share a little bit of your childhood to give people a little lead up and a little backstory into how that evolved into prison and all that? Sure. Uh, so I grew up in Michigan, uh, in small town, Michigan. Uh, it's called Carson City. Um, Carson City Crystal, there's two of them. Uh, I started getting molested by my uncle when I was five. Uh, life was... It was, I guess it was a normal life up until mm -hmm. then, from what I can remember. It was a single mother household. My father left when I was very young. Uh, and we used to go to grandma's house constantly. She lived, you know, 25, 30 minutes up the road. And 
my uncle Mike started to molest me when I was five, me and my brother, it turns out all of my cousins. And, and I told on, I, I was charged with a felony when I was seven. Mm -hmm. uh, my brother and I broke into a church and we stole some pudding cups and some, some playing cards and I don't know, some odds and ends. And I got the ass whooping of a lifetime for that. And I broke down and told my mother what was happening. And, right. uh, and, and it's crazy because I just realized this, this isn't even in the book. Like I, cause I didn't remember, I had forgotten this aspect until I talked with my mother about it. And by then the book's already done. So yeah, uh, I told on my uncle Mike when I was seven and apparently my grandparents swept it under the rug. Um, and he was able to avoid any going to jail or anything. And we kept going there. <laughs> And I, I mean, I literally just came across this information recently. And so I was not allowed to play upstairs anymore. And now I know why. Uh, but that didn't stop him. And so I was still being molested uh, up until I was 10. Uh, and then I told on him yet again. And that's when he was arrested and went to prison for 15 years. And my whole family shattered. Um, there was no more going to grandma's house you know, no more holidays with relatives and, and family. And that made me believe that by telling on him, I, his threats came true because he, he used to threaten me. If you tell anybody, I'll have to hurt the whole family. I'll have to hurt your mom and, and everybody. Yeah. And, yeah. and that threat came to fruition, even though it wasn't the way he had intended the family still, it shattered. Right. And so I internalized that emotion. So I didn't say anything about the other men that were molesting me. And so my mom's boyfriend was molesting me. One of her family friends was molesting me and, oh and a guy named Robbie was molesting me. There was just a lot of, I felt like a pass around toy. And so when I got arrested at seven and charged and convicted of a felony, I was given 60 days probation. And when that happened, all the men that were molesting me kind of went away, right? They did just, stayed away. And so in my young mind, I attributed getting in trouble with the law to protecting myself from these men that were, were harming me. And I figured I can take a little bit of a, you know, I can take a whooping and you know, my mom will be mad at me. The courts will be mad at me, but I'm safe, right? I'm, mm -hmm. I'm on probation. I'm fine. Nobody wants to come around and molest the kid that's on probation. Uh, and so I internalized that and continued to break the law because that's how you get their attention. And so I continued to do that uh, all, up until I was 16. And I was bound over to adult court at, at age 16. And the judge said, all right, I'm going to make an example of you. And he sent me to prison. I'd never been taken away before, never put into a, a juvie facility. I mean, I, I went to a foster home for a week or so, but that was kind of like a transitionary period. Um, mm -hmm. So I never really lost anything. And this was a complete mind change for me being sent to prison. And the first week I was in there, I was raped by two dudes across the hall. Uh, the doors would open automatically for chow and two men ran into the cell and it was a very brutal experience. And, and then they left and I was laying there in the room on the bunk. And I was, I mean, I was crying. I was, but I was angry and mm -hmm. I was, and I, something snapped and I said, I'm never going to be a victim again. Mm -hmm. And I know that I'm facing these five years here in prison. So I have to 
do something to protect myself. So I grabbed a handful of pencils and I ran across the hall when the doors opened. I saw the guy come down. I ran door. I just started stabbing him in the face. And that did something very psychologically damaging for me because Mm -hmm. nobody knew what these men had done. All they Mm -hmm. saw was this skinny white kid come out and stab the crap out of this guy. Yeah. So that gave me instant respect and fear from the people around me. And I, it was tangible. I felt that. And I knew this was my ticket to protection, to surviving while I'm here. And so the gangs approached me quickly because, you know, a gang, they, they want somebody like that. You know, they seen that I was not afraid to stab people. And, and I did, I, I, I escaped into this gang banging mentality. Oh, excuse me. Where I, I mean, I was known for stabbing people. And Mm -hmm. I devolved into this gang environment because it felt like protection first and foremost, but then there was this familial aspect to it where it was Mm -hmm. like brotherhood and family. These, they they celebrated, you know, your birthdays and and important moments in your life. And they were like family. Mm -hmm. And so I just, I kind of delved into that atmosphere. Uh, And for five years, I mean, it's, you'll have to read the book. It goes way in depth into the experiences of that five years, but at 21, the doors were opened and I was released with no parole, no probation. Here's $75, three condoms. Good luck. And I mean, I had just been, I had put on so many masks that I didn't know who the hell I was. I I was living off instinct. I was very selfish, very self-centered. I had no conscience. I didn't care about anything, but instant gratification and I mean, I robbed people left and right. I got into robbing drug dealers. It was a very lucrative little business, right. um, home invasion rings, gangster life. Uh, I mean, I was, I got a couple of girls pregnant very quickly uh, in opposite sides of the country. And I didn't last long. I lasted about 20 months. I got mm-hmm. rearrested and went back to prison for another 12 years. Um, and then I found out in 2008, I found out that my brother, who was the only person in my life that I ever loved, mm-hmm. uh, because it was me and my brother in, in a single mother household, and I'd always idolized my brother. And I found out in 2008 that he was having an affair with the mother of my oldest son, who her and I were back together at this time. And she had been bringing my son to see me, you know, every week in visitation. And I was really focused on being a father. And trying mm-hmm. to be the best dad I could be from the position I was in. I mm-hmm. still had a very a skewed mindset as I was trying to be a legit gangster, if that was a thing. You mm-hmm. know, um, I started absorbing mindset books, but the ones that weren't good. The 48 Laws of Power by Robert Greene, The Prince by Machiavelli. And these, all the, the, these pieces of literature are designed to help you learn to manipulate and in be for all intents and purposes, a better criminal. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, but in my mind, I was trying to do the right thing. And mm-hmm. when I found out that they were having this affair, uh, I, I had gotten through to her on the phone and she said, your brother is going to raise our son as his. Uh, and he doesn't think you should call anymore. Ugh. And, and then they hung up and that was it. And I mean, my whole world had just kind of shattered. I, I just felt yeah. like, what is the point of even trying to be a good person, right? Like yeah. You you grow up hearing about karma, right? Karma's a bitch. Karma's yes, you know. And 
in my mind, karma screwed me first, right? Because what did, what did a seven-year-old do to the world? Right. What did a five-year-old do? What did an eight, nine, ten-year-old do to the world? Yeah. And, and, and so I had developed this mindset that I was karma's enforcer. Karma sent me to dole out its punishment. Ooh. And I use that as my justification for the evil that I was doing to people. Um, but when I found this out, unfortunately for a new young uh, gangbanger that had just got to prison, was trying to make a name for himself. He ran into my cell while I was at work and I came back and he stole all my stuff. And I was very well known and it didn't take long at all for me to find out who it was people immediately were like, yeah, yeah that, that, that's the guy. And I lost my mind. I, I went out and, and had a very savagely violent altercation with this guy. And I was taken to the hole. And as I get thrown into the hole, into my cell, I'm washing blood and pepper spray off of my face. And I hear, hey, why boy, come talk to me. And it's a guy across the hall, it's an elderly black gentleman. Mm -hmm. And I snapped out on him immediately you know i'm cussing him out calling him everything under the sun stop talking to me man don't don't yell over here uh and he wouldn't stop every couple hours every day hey white boy come on man come talk to me man what you <laughs> do why are you in here man hey white boy come on man and i ignored him for a week i mean i I'm cussing him out blah, blah blah but i ignored him and then a week later i went down and i saw the security classification committee and these are the people that that hear your charges of what you're doing and they dole out their punishment and they gave me 60 months in the hole. So mm -hmm. they gave me five years in solitary confinement. And I was like, well, I guess I still got eight years to go, whatever. I just, I don't really care. I just didn't care about anything. Right. And so they sent me back and not shortly after I was back in my cell. Hey, why boy, what happened? what they give you, man? What happened? And I, out of loneliness and desperation or whatever, I just decided, all right, what? So I get to the door. What, man, what do you want to talk about? And he said, why are you so angry? And I said, what the hell kind of question is that, man? <laughs> because I'm in prison, I'm in the hole, my life sucks, you won't shut up. There's lots <laughs> of reasons why I'm angry. And he says, he says, no, 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 that's why you're mad. And mad is a surface emotion. Anger is much, much deeper. And you are an angry young man. And why are you so angry? And I, I'm... I was speechless. I don't, I don't have an answer. I don't have a reply. Right. And so I chalked it up to him being ignorant and you know, whatever, man, leave me alone. He's like, all yeah. right, go think about it and holler back at me when you figure it out. And so I clearly did not intend to holler back at him. Right. Uh, I went back and I started exercising in my cell, you know, doing, doing pushups and, and, and stuff. And I start got to thinking like, why am I so angry? Is at that stage, I didn't even consider why I'm such an angry person. And then as I'm working out, it starts to come back. Like, I know why I'm so angry. I've been a victim my whole life. That's yeah. why I'm angry. Yeah. And so I got up and I got back in the door and I'm like, man, I figured it out. I know why I'm so angry. And I started to tell him. And then over the course of 19 months, this man changed my life. I went through a complete metamorphosis of self-empowerment, of self-forgiveness, of the pathway to redemption, the power of forgiving myself and forgiving others, the power of processing emotion 
and letting go of tragedy and, and working through every emotion that you could think of. And at the end of this experience, I'm, I'm, I mean, I was a completely different person. It, it completely changed my life. And he, I had gotten into writing and um, he, I, I wrote a, uh, I entered a contest in the, in the facility and I, and I submitted this poem called uh, from monstrous to magnanimous and it won, it won throughout the whole facility. And I was shocked because I'm in, I'm in solitary confinement. I can't have the $10 store bag that they give out for a prize. Right. Right. <laughs> but I, wake, I wake up one day with the assistant deputy warden knocking on my door and says, congratulations, you won the poetry contest or this, this written word contest. And yeah. I can't give you the prize because you're in the hole, but we want to talk to you. And I'm like, well, for what? But I mean, I'm not going to say anything. All right. So I turn right. around, I cuff up. They take me down to the room, uh, down to the AROS's office. That's the assistant resident unit supervisor. And we go down there and they begin to tell me, we're very impressed by the work that you've been doing over the last year. And we can see the changes that you're making. It's very tangible. And I'm like, really? I didn't even <laughs> know you were paying attention. Right. And they're like, yeah, yeah. So the Department of Corrections is implementing a new program called Thinking for a Change, and we want inmates to teach the class. And we're wondering if you'll study this course material. And if you do, we'll let you out of the hole to teach it, and we'll let you out of the hole early. I'm, I'm absolutely in. 100%. Anything to get out of this hole. Yeah. Yeah. I'm in. So they gave me the course materials. I studied it. Uh, they pulled me back down and said, how would you teach the class? And so I mm -hmm. kind of broke down the process I would use for the curriculum. And then I'm trying to figure out, he said, okay, we're, we're going to give you the shot at this. You're going to, you know, it's two hours a week for two months. Uh, you'll be teaching this class. And they sent me back to my cell with, and I'm thinking, how's that going to work? I'm in the hole. Are you going to let me out of the hole two hours a week? Yeah. That doesn't make that. That's going to set me up. People are going to think I'm a rat or something. Right. Like they don't let people out of the hole to go mingle with GP and come back. Unless they've narked on <clears throat> someone. <laughs> right. So I'm trying to figure out how this is going to work. Both me and Mallory across the hall. His name's Mallory Bay. And we're trying to figure out how this is going to work. And he's like, whatever, just roll with it. You can teach them some of the stuff that I've taught you. And, and this is the, the work that you've been putting in. I'm proud of you. And, and then they came down the next day or a week or so later with a, a duffel bag and was like, pack up, you're leaving. And I'm like, oh man, they're going to let me out of the hole. I'm going to GP. I, you know, I, this is 19 months I've been in here. And we're both, me and Mallory Bay are both dumbfounded. Like, this is nuts. And, <laughs> and, and he made an emphasis to remember, white boy, we ain't friends, right? If you see me on the yard, don't come up thanking me or talking to me or shaking my hand. We're not friends. And we weren't because of, of prison politics. Like he's been in prison since the eighties. He's a Mobite and a Muslim, and they are forbidden to aid or assist white people in any form. Um, and so I understood the gravity of that. Like they would kill him if they found out that he was helping me. And so as we leave, I, I remember saying, Hey, Hey Mallory, I hate that you call me white boy, bro. <laughs> it's disrespectful and it's, it's racist. I don't like it. <laughs> and he said, all right, white boy. <laughs> and all I could do was laugh. Right. <laughs> and so we get out and they're taking me to the unit and I'm, I'm thinking, okay, I'm going to be out GP and, and we're good. And as we're going, they start taking me towards two block 
and two block is protective custody. And I'm like, wait a minute, did, w- w- where are we going here? Yeah. Right. And PC is not where you want to be in prison. No, that, that's where the worst of the worst are rats, snitches, pedophiles, the worst of the worst are here. Yeah. And I'm thinking, huh, this is a sick joke, right? Like, what are y'all trying to do to me? And so I, I still, I, I'm not going to argue. I'm not going to say anything. I go into the unit. Uh, I talk with the ARUS. This is, you're going to be teaching the class here, blah, blah, blah. Uh, and I come up a couple of days later for the, to meet the class. And I come in and there's 20 students in here. And part of thinking for a change, first, you have to uh, sign a waiver form that anything that's discussed in this classroom, you cannot talk about outside of the classroom. And then you have to divulge your crime, what you're in prison for. And out of the 20 men, 17 were pedophiles. And wow. the three that weren't, instantly got up and left. <laughs> They're like, I'm not, I'm, I'm not going to sit here and listen to these sick bastards and what they've done to kids. I'm out. And they left. So here I am, ironically, in this full circle, weird test of my mentality. I've been a horrid victim of molestation from pedophiles most of my life. And now I have to teach 17 pedophiles how yeah. to stop being predators, <laughs> how to think. And I'm thinking to myself, there's no way I can do this, right? I, I, I don't think that there's any form of help that changes you. It's a propensity. You are attracted to children and you can't change that. That's like saying, Sonny, it's illegal to be attracted to women. I, mm. I'm going to go to jail because mm. I, I'm attracted to females. I'm married to a beautiful blonde woman. <laughs> mm-hmm. I can't change that. Mm-hmm. And so I think the con- same concept exists with pedophiles. You are just naturally, you have a, a, an attraction to children. And then I got to thinking, but it's still a choice. Everything in life is a choice. And this is my moment, not for them, but for me to understand that I am the master of myself. And if I can teach the most despicable human beings in the planet, then I know that I have done the change. I have made the internal change that I need to live a, a prosperous, meaningful, and purposeful life. Mm-hmm. And I did. I taught this class and uh, I, I, I gave it to them from a molestation victim's perspective. This mm. is what you have caused in these mm-hmm. children, children's lives. And, and then also the course material and how we're going to do all that. But when the class was done, I, I talked to the ARUS and told them, like, I don't want to do this again. <laughs> right? Right, right. I do it. I enjoy teaching, but that's very emotionally heavy for me to, to go through that. Yeah. And, and they said, it's okay. No, nope, you fulfilled your, your, your part and you're good. You can either go back to GP or you can stay here in protective custody if you want to. And then I was like, you know what? I kind of like being away from general population because I'm leaving my gang. I took an oath of nonviolence and I know when I get out, I'm going to have to go to, I mean, I'm very well known in the gang. So yeah. I'm going to have to go out and I'm going to have to to quit. And I know that that is, there's a beating that is required in that. So I know I'm going to have to take a beating. Uh, and so I decided to stay there for a bit longer. And I, I ended up, you know, staying there for a couple of years, uh, mm-hmm. walking myself closer to the door. Uh, and I knew that I had to leave because seeing the parole board in protective custody is not a good thing. It's still mm-hmm. a segregation and, and they're going to want you to be in general population. So mm-hmm. I knew I had to leave. I had talked to the ARUS and the ADWs and said, listen, this is what's going to happen. 
when I leave here. A, they're going to think I'm a rat and a piece of shit because I've been in protective custody. And they know that I've been in protective custody. It's not a secret when they see me coming out of two block. Right. right. <laughs> uh, but also I'm denouncing my gang and that's going to, that's going to have some repercussions. <clears throat> and they said, we'll do our best to get you transferred out of here as quickly as possible. So I went out and immediately, same day, immediately they come up, yo, what's up, bro, blah, 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 all happy and celebrating to see me, blah, blah, blah. congratulations, you made it out. Uh, and then I immediately went to the head of the gang on the yard and said, you know, let's take a walk. I got to talk to you. And I, you know, I tried to do it very civilly. Like, listen, I've put in a lot of work, uh, but I've turned a new leaf in my life and I'm going to retire. I don't want to do this anymore. I don't want to be a part of this. Mm -hmm. And he's, you know, no, it's not going to happen. You, you can't quit. You know that. And uh, so I endured some beatings for a while, uh, a couple times a week for about a year. Um, I endured a lot. Mm -hmm. uh, and eventually, I, you know, I let them know, like, listen, I don't, I took an oath of nonviolence. And you're going to force me to break that. Because I can't obviously do the rest of my time being beaten every couple times a week. I, I can't yeah. do that. And yeah. so if you don't stop, I'm going to have to make an example of you. <laughs> and, and of course, nobody in prison is scared or intimidated, right? So of course they, they did it again. And I had to dig into my bag of tricks and make an example of them. And, and that was like, I didn't want to, but I saw no other recourse. And I can't, yeah. you, you can't just keep going to administration and saying, Hey, I need help. I need help. These guys won't leave me alone because that goes in your file as well. And the parole board's going to see that. And the parole board's just going to, well, you just can't stay out of trouble. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and mm -hmm. so after a pretty violent altercation, they left me alone. They realized that I meant business. And if I have to, I will destroy every one of your lives. I don't want to, but I will. Mm -hmm. uh, and so they left me alone. And I was able to spend the rest of my time in relative peace. Uh, and I, I took to mentoring guys on the yard and, and we would have study groups and, and, and then I dedicated my life to, to helping people. And I'm on the 16th of this month, I'll be celebrating my seventh year of being released. And I've dedicated my life to it ever since. And it, it, it hasn't been, it's not like it's been an easy path, right? Like, like getting out after spending half of your life in a can yeah. Even, even armed with all the wisdom that I had, you know, I'm not a Christian by any sense, but I love some of some of the Bible. Like, I love it. Like Ecclesiastes 118 says, for which with much grief comes much sorrow. The more one increases his wisdom, the more he increases his sorrow. And all that stuff that I learned almost immediately just started to evaporate. When I walked out, I'm getting just an onslaught of freedom. Like, colors and sounds and tastes and smells. And, and I, I knew that I, I mean, I had a path in my life that I wanted to take. And so I started a band and it did very successful in the band. Um, and when COVID hit, I couldn't do a band anymore. Um, and so I started YouTubing and I did really well on YouTube um, and realized that I wasn't happy in the relationship that I was in. Uh, so I left and she took it very bad. Mm -hmm. And uh, my my channel ended up getting hacked. And in 2019, was it 2019 or 2020? Yeah, December of 2020, I was homeless. I had nothing. I had been out for five years or so. And, and I'm like, this is not the end of the story, right? It, it, 
you can choose to get up at any moment and turn your life around, make the choice. Yeah. And, and while I wasn't, I wasn't a destitute individual. I wasn't strung out on drugs and, and homeless, like in, in the homeless sense, she kept right. or she kept all my stuff and I was standing there with nothing. Right. Uh, I immediately bought another car and I went back in and I secured a new condo and I started to rebuild my life. And I did it all on camera to show people in real time. This is how you get up after falling down. Like losing is a choice. You only lose when you quit. If right. you choose not to quit and you forgive and put one foot in front of the other, let kindness be your compass and push forward. Redemption is possible. You just keep pushing forward. Yeah. Uh, and then, you know, I met my, my wonderful wife on a podcast. And after a few months, we, we decided that we were going to move here to Palm Springs, California and start our life. And we did. And we now own a cat cafe. I have a mindset coaching company. Uh, I volunteer at juvenile facilities to mentor juveniles. I'm a, a re-entry coach with the Anti-Recidivism Coalition in LA. Uh, and I'm living my best life and, and just trying to live a purpose-driven life. Yeah. Yeah. And that's inspiring to people in prison because when you go in and you get the prison sentence, you are told that is it. Your life is over. You cannot become a successful individual because you just blew your shot. I distinctly recall talking to the ARUS when I was doing my parole plan. And he said, because I had had, I was married at the time. I met a girl while I was locked up and she had introduced me to her best friend's husband, who was a supervisor with the union uh, in a demolition company in uh, Cleveland. Mm -hmm. And he was going to hook me up with a job. And so I was telling the ARUS about this. And he said, you got to be very grateful for this because with your kind of background and your kind of record, nobody's really giving ex-convicts good jobs. Uh, the best you could hope for would be a, a, a you know, a supervisor position at a factory. And the fact that you've got an opportunity to join the union here, the best you're ever going to get. So you should accept that. And I didn't accept that from day one. When I walked out, I said, I, you know what? I'm on this job. I appreciate this job and I like this job, but I will quit this job soon. I will not have this because my life is meant for more. There's, mm -hmm. there's more out here and I'm going to be an example of that. Mm -hmm. And as soon as I signed my, my record deal with my label, I quit. <laughs> I'm, I'm done. And I'm going to live my life based on purpose and service uh, and, and success and happiness. And, and I've done that. And I've done quite a bit of things in my life since being out. Um, and, and it's all, I, I love studying the Stoics. I'm a big fan of Stoicism. And Marcus mm -hmm. Aurelius famously said, everything that gets thrown into the fire becomes fuel for the fire. And so, and the, and the, the Stoics have a saying that is amor fati, which means love the process, right? So every up and down that we have in life is just a contribution to the story of our life. And when we learn to let go of victimhood and, and, Victor Frankl said it best, suffering ceases to be suffering the moment it has a reason. And when we learn to take our suffering that we've had in our past and apply it to teaching, to helping other people learn from our unique perspective of the trauma or the circumstances that we've been through in life, it's no longer suffering. Now it's defining your legacy. And we mm -hmm. all get to define our legacy. 
And it can either be a legacy of failure, of quitting, of trauma, of limitations, or it can be a legacy of success and, and, and triumph and overcoming and perseverance. And it, it's a choice. You get mm -hmm. to choose which one of those you want. And so mm -hmm. I choose redemption. I choose positivity. I choose service. And so that's what my life is. I love it. I love it. For somebody out there that is maybe either getting out of prison or maybe they've never been to prison. Maybe they're just angry because they feel the world was out to get them. How do they start that journey of changing their mindset to maybe get on a better, more fulfilled path? Um, I mean, the, the simple answer is to take every dollar that you have, tie it to a rock and throw it into a lake. And then, <laughs> and then, and then change that, change it. How can you change that? You can't, no. <laughs> you cannot, there are no do-overs in life. And when you learn to accept that you cannot change the past, you can't change anything that's been said or done. All you can do is learn from it and move forward. When we learn to let go of our victimhood, because it's not my fault. It wasn't my fault that I was raped. It wasn't my fault that I was molested by, uh, by men. It wasn't my fault that I've had trauma in my life. But there's a lot of things that were my fault. And it wasn't the fault of my victims that I victimized them people. It wasn't, my, it wasn't their fault that I broke into their homes and stole their stuff. Mm -hmm. You know, It wasn't their fault either. And so mm -hmm. while I can drown myself in my own self-pity and victimization, what about the people that I've wronged in my life? Right. What did they get to do? So mm -hmm. that that has to count for something. Right. And so, again, suffering ceases to be suffering the moment it has a meaning. So when we look back at our life and, and a lot of most of us have been through something traumatic. Right. Mm -hmm. There's there's not much difference between people's trauma. Right. Trauma is trauma. And, and when we learn that that trauma can help inspire somebody, when we learn that we have this unique thing called a voice. Right. And we, that's what separates us from every other species on the planet. We have the ability to have a conversation, to, to, uh, to, to verbalize our emotions and our feelings and have these conversations. You, the more you say something, the more you talk about your trauma, the easier it is to talk about. Right. I didn't tell anybody that I was raped in prison until I met my wife. She was the first person that I told. And right. I had already been through a ton of self-healing and self-forgiveness. I just wasn't comfortable speaking on that. And then uh, again, I learned my own lesson. The more you speak about something, the easier it is to talk about. That's called healing. Mm -hmm. And then there's a twofold bonus to this, because as you're healing using your voice, people are listening. And mm -hmm. those people are healing through your voice. And they're finding the inspiration to speak about their trauma. And then that starts the process of healing for them. Mm -hmm. And so my advice to anybody that's stuck in life is talk about it. Tell people, tell ever, don't complain. Tell your story. Mm -hmm. Talk about, don't, you know, oh, poor me, poor me. No, this is just, this is what happened. And I'm trying to talk about it and, and express it so that more people can feel comfortable expressing themselves. One in six boys are molested in this country. And mm -hmm. they don't talk about it. We have yeah. this, this massive stigma that lays on men uh, and women too. It's not that, that women aren't. No, 
Well, I think that with women and girls, it's almost like that's what's expected and that's who's targeted. And so right. we don't really focus. Even when I was a victim of sexual molestation, I thought it was a girl problem. I didn't know or realize that boys got the same thing. Right. And and mm -hmm. and again, we're admonished to, to talk about it. We don't talk about it. Mm -hmm. Right. And and then there's also this this mindset that forgiveness is somehow weakness. Mm -hmm. Right. That that if you forgive people, you're weak. Right. And and that mindset is so destructive and dangerous because it takes so much strength and courage to forgive someone that has wronged you. It's yeah. it's nowhere near weak. Uh, and I come to find that being able to forgive people isn't for their benefit. It doesn't, it doesn't do them anything. It's for mm -hmm. me. It's for myself because holding on to resentment is like swallowing poison and expecting the other person to die. There's, there's no point in holding it. And by holding it, you're just keeping yourself a victim because your victimizer is not even thinking about it. He's not, right. he's not reflecting back. I mean, like, man, I feel so bad for what I did to that person. And even if right. they are, that's not going to change that it happened either. Right. And nothing will change the fact that that circumstance took place. And right. so what, what people need to, to understand is that you have a choice that you can either remain a victim and wallow in your pity and, and live a very limited sheltered life of unhappiness. Mm -hmm. Or you can choose to accept that this was my fate, my experience. Hey, Genesis. Hey, Mom. Genesis, have you heard what Chili's is doing this month? No, what? Chili's is starting their Creative Pepper fundraiser for St. Jude. Wow, neat. What's Creative Pepper? Chili's is hosting a month of fun that includes t-shirts you can decorate for only $12.99. Really? Wow. Oh, there's more. Really? What? For a dollar, you can color a pepper to enter to win a gift card. Wow, that's cool. What did they do with all that money? Just donate it to St. Jude. Plus... There's more? Yes. Select locations are having different activities to raise money all month. Want to hear what our Chili's in Dawsonville is doing? Do I? Yes, tell me. Every Friday is theme night, so the staff, that's us, is going to dress up as a different theme, like nerd night, superhero night, fun stuff like that. We also have jars with the manager's faces. Whoever collects the most in their jar gets pied in the face at the end of the month. Wow, fun! There's more. More? More. There's a fish tank with three targets. Each target represents a specific dessert. It only takes a quarter to win. Wow, that sounds so fun. When are we going to Chili's again? I like the desserts there. Oh, Mom, what does Chili's do with all that money? Good question. Chili's partnership with St. Jude helps ensure families never get a bill for treatment, housing, or transportation. This way, they can focus on what's truly important. The St. Jude Imagine Academy by Chili's helps children stay in school while receiving treatment. Okay. After this episode, grab your quarters and let's go to Chili's and have some fun while helping St. Jude. Hey mom, do you have any change? I know which manager I want to pie in the face. Life was destined to go through that and then 
teach other people, explain it, talk about it, let it go and heal mm. it and, mm. and, and, and learn from it and grow from it. Give your suffering a meaning and, and you'll find happiness. You'll find success. The universe will give you whatever you want. You can do whatever you want in this lifetime. And I remember standing in that hole, talking to myself, imagining that I'm on a stage talking to tons of people. And every single time I take a stage, I'm reminded of manifestation. I'm reminded of the power of forgiving myself and others because I'm absolutely on stages talking to people, performing and, and healing the world. So I manifested exactly what I wanted by forgiving myself, by taking down those barriers that block you from manifesting whatever you want in your life. Yeah. What do you think made you open to hear Mallory's message to you? Because you could have accepted it and said, and either way, you could have said, you know what? Piss off, old man. You and know I what did. I mean? <laughs> I did for a long time. And it wasn't, it wasn't always easy. Every time he's given me a new assignment, I'm like, what? Or I would have a vulnerable moment and I would share something very private and vulnerable with him. And he'd be like, what? What, what, what you mean? So what, <laughs> or you give yeah. me another, another assignment or something. I'm like, dude, you don't, you don't feel bad for me at all. And he's like, what, what do you want me to pity you? What, what's that going to do? What's me giving you some kind of pity going to do for you? That's not going to do anything. Yeah. Oh, well, you're right. Shit. I guess you're right. <laughs> well, well, I, I don't know what else to say. And, yeah. and, and when you go to rock bottom, when you are at rock bottom in your life, there's nowhere else to go. Yeah. Nowhere else to go but up. And yeah. so, and the beautiful thing about being there and being cognizant and self-aware enough to realize you're at rock bottom is it's a beautiful, beautiful place to start building a foundation. Mm -hmm. And you, you can build such a strong, powerful foundation that you can never go back to rock bottom because you, you filled the hole. You didn't just climb out of it. You built your way out of it. And then you can't go back because there's a foundation there. Yeah. Right? Yeah. I caught your show the other day where you were talking about writing your story in reverse. I thought that was very powerful it's and a magnificent lesson. Great tool. If you want to settle things with yourself, that is definitely a good way to do it. How did you learn that? Well, so, I mean, he told me this, uh, you know, this is one of the things that he, he, he gave me, I don't know where he learned it, but uh, when I was, you know, he said, you, you have to forgive other people uh, and forgive yourself for the things that you've done. And I'm like, I don't remember half the stuff that I've done. What do you mean? And, and so he said, live your life in reverse. Mm -hmm. Before I was here, I was here. Before I was here, I was here. And, he, and he's like, you'll be surprised at how fast you can remember your entire life. Because if you try to live it forward, you can't remember. If you start mm -hmm. from when I was a child, uh, my earliest memory, and then moving forward, you you'll just blank on on half the stuff because your mind doesn't seem to work that way. But mm -hmm. if you go before I was here, I was here before I was here, I was here. In 10 minutes, you can relive your whole life. And you'll be surprised how accurate you can remember where you were before you were somewhere else, all the way back to your childhood to your first memories. And then you can go back and expound on that list, you go back and you find each one of those moments and and recall pivotal moments in there, good moments, bad moments, happy, sad, whatever, find, find those moments in there. And you can reconcile everything in your life. You can go back and, and work through and process every emotion that you've ever had. And if, if it makes you sad, cry, mm -hmm. if it makes you angry, put on some boxing gloves and beat a, a punching bag or mm -hmm. 
do push-ups until you can't move anymore, right? Mm -hmm. If it, if it, if it makes you, you know, happy, do freaking run out and scream to, on the top of your lungs and laugh and, and be happy, feel that emotion. And that's processing. That's processing that emotion and, and get it out. I remember being so angry at my uncle and, and the other men that molested me. And I'm like, I'm just so mad. I rolled up my, my mattress and beat the living hell out of it till my knuckles bled. Mm -hmm. And then the, the energy was gone. And it just, it felt like a weightlifting, but it wasn't mm -hmm. until I wrote my forgiveness letters that, that it really, I felt that weight lift. Because mm -hmm. right after that process, I'm like, dude, I've done so much wrong to so many people. I, I don't even know who they are. I don't know their names. How am I ever supposed to ask them for forgiveness? Mm -hmm. And and so we all know the age old adage that people say, write your emotions down on paper and burn it. Mm -hmm. And it's therapeutic. And it is. Uh, yeah. I couldn't burn anything because I was in prison. Um and so he said, write, sit down. And I mean, this was a couple month process. It took me a couple of months, uh, but I wrote letters to every person I could remember that I've ever harmed or wrong. And I wrote heartfelt letters and I rewrote them and rewrote them. Cause when I started off, it was all victimizing and excusing, uh, you know, I had such a bad life. And so I lashed out, blah, blah, blah. And that's right. not, that's not authentic. That's not, that's not remorse. Right. And when I started to realize my remorse for breaking into your home could have looked like your children lost faith in their parents' ability to protect them, or your a wife lost her faith in her husband to protect her and her family, or a father who has lost his own sense of self-worth and you know he has lost the ability to protect his family. Like I have maybe put indelible marks on people's lives and ruined them. And, and I don't know how to forget. And so these are what I come to terms with. I, I laid it all out raw on paper. And then I read them out loud, pacing in my cell back of when I would read them out loud and I would feel it and I would cry and I would yeah. be mad at myself. Uh, and then he told me, flush it down the toilet and you give it to Allah. And mm -hmm. I don't, I'm not a religious guy. I don't care if you call him Allah, God, Buddha, you can call him whatever you want. When you put your heartfelt remorse into writing and then you burn it, flush it, whatever, that remorse goes to God and God will deliver that remorse to the people that you're sending it to. And while they may not receive it in the traditional sense of receiving a message, their heart will be lifted. Mm -hmm. And when I did that, I felt the weight just come off. I felt lighter. I felt the weight come off my shoulders and, I, and, and it worked. I'm like, this is, this, it's incredible. Yeah. It's incredible. And I bet you, you probably went through more of that while you were writing your book. Oh yeah. Oh, it, it's very, it, it's, it was such an eye-opening process because my wife and I are writing it together. Mm -hmm. so she's much more smarter than I am. We'll say <laughs> she's much more educated and she's such a phenomenal writer. And so we, our process for writing the book was every morning, we're up at 5 a.m. We have our morning routines and then we sit down for an hour and she interviews me basically. Mm -hmm. um, and she takes notes, she records, and then I go off and run the cat cafe and I come home and she just has these beautiful chapters written out. And it's mm -hmm. like, I mean, it almost felt like you were there with me. Like you've paid so much attention to what I'm saying and mm -hmm. you've elocuted exactly what I'm saying, what 
It's just, it's beautiful. And I'm telling you, it is such a beautiful book. It, it's, I can't wait to read it. It's a beautiful so, book. When is it coming out exactly? September 1st. It will be available September 1st. The ebook is available for pre-order already. Um, but we are in the middle of the uploading process um, for the book. So it'll be, it'll be available September 1st. Awesome. And my, my thing is if you're a guest on my show and you've written a book, I have to have a signed copy. So we'll have to get together on how I can obtain one of those. You can. <laughs> I will. Uh, so I'm ordering a, a handful of copies myself. I'm doing a, a book release uh, at my cat cafe for okay. signed copies uh, at the, at the cafe. So I will have a handful of them as well for people that want to just buy them directly and, and have them signed. So awesome. Totally got you. Yeah. And are you going to do that in, as a live on Facebook? I'll, sh I'll definitely share it because your story impacts so many people because I think that in society, we are made to believe that if we make mistakes, that's just, that just ruins our whole entire existence. And that is all that not that a mistake is a lesson to be learned and something good can come out of mistakes. Well, the unfortunate side is <clears throat> the prison system in this country is modern day slavery. It yeah. is, it is, it's a cattle farm. Yeah. Um, and when you have private prisons, they, they have to have bodies. It's a business, right? Yeah. And the recidivism rate across the board is like 77%. What business do you know can fail 77% of the time and yeah. still have governmental support? Oh, Absolutely. It's designed for failure. Mm -hmm. it, it, there's, we lack empathy and compassion in the application of our government. And mm -hmm. when you look at other countries like Finland and, and some of these other countries, that their prison system is more like a college. It's an educational system where they, they focus on rehabilitation. They focus on fixing the problem. You can go here in a, in a prison anywhere in, in the United States and the programs are there, but they're not going to push you to them. They're not going to force you to sit down and pay attention. They're not going to have you, they're not even going to motivate you to, they're not going to inspire you to, mm -hmm. right? They, they sit you down and tell you that you, you're not going to be able to accomplish much because you screwed up big time, mm -hmm. right? And it's, it's such a defeatist mindset that most people, that's why the recidivism rate is so high. Most people automatically get out of prison thinking, I need to just be a better criminal. I need to be a smarter yeah. criminal. <laughs> right. yes. Instead of getting caught, I need to learn how to not get caught. And so they they digest shows like NCIS and, and all these you know true crime shows that they see on TV and think, oh, well, I just need to not touch the bullets or I need to wear gloves or put on a mask. And, and that's yeah. their education. Yes. So, and and the, the Department of Corrections doesn't do anything to try to adjust that behavior. No, they do not. Let them think it because Department they Department of Correction, which just keeps you in line. Right. And mm -hmm. I think that, that that starts with educating the officers because the officers are the ones that have the they're on the front lines. They mm -hmm. are they they associate with the inmates on a daily basis. Mm -hmm. And they're the front line. If you were to set up programming to educate corrections officers, it's a mandatory curriculum that they go through mindset training. Mm -hmm. That's how you change the culture because mm -hmm. then they have, they, then they approach prison from a perspective of kindness and a desire and purpose to help. 
And when mm-hmm. they go in and they, they don't see them as inmates that need to be punished because they're already being punished. You yes. put them in, in prison with a bunch of sharks. It's already punishment. Mm-hmm. The, if the officers were able to focus on corrections and they hide behind every excuse known to man, well, then there's mm-hmm. over familiarity. If she's kind to this person, he's going to take advances and think that she's coming on to him. And that's how rape happens. And, and, and you're manifesting these things because that's not how it works. It doesn't mm-hmm. work like that. Officers and staff that are kind are respected. I still have, you'll see, if you look at my Facebooks or any of my social medias, you'll see Jill Setzer. I call her ma. She was uh, a food steward. She worked in the one of the facilities I was at. And to this day, she's one of the dearest people in my life. She's an older lady that was nothing but kind, treated mm-hmm. us like human beings. Mm-hmm. And, and she did more single-handedly for inmates out of that facility than the, than the entire institution. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and that's it. Kindness mm-hmm. needs to be the compass. When mm-hmm. kindness is our compass, everything else falls into place. Yeah. Yeah. And I think they use the excuse, well, you can't keep order with kindness. But I think that is a, a misconstrued thought process Very. because I don't think you need to treat people like animals or like they don't matter to keep control. 100 percent. Kindness mm-hmm. Kindness doesn't fail. There are people that will take advantage of it and try to take advantage of it. But just because you're kind doesn't mean you can't have boundaries. And you mm-hmm. set those boundaries and you adhere to them with kindness. And, and, and if you violate the boundary, then you're just removed from it, right? Like I'm not, it's not my job to punish you. I don't have to make your life worse. You're just mm-hmm. now restricted from access to what's within these boundaries. And, mm-hmm. and then that's their loss. So they'll, they'll go on about their business and do whatever it is they're going to do. But you have still cultivated the, the space of kindness and you'll still do so much more good than bad. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Obviously it worked for you. You went from being a very notorious person to now you're an inspiration and you're a friend to the police. I saw you did a ride along today. We just did. And I mean, <laughs> what an eye opening experience. Um, I mean, I see the complexities that go in with police officers in their work with with homeless people in particular and people with mental uh, disabilities and mental problems. There's not enough help uh, out here, especially in places with mass homelessness. Mm-hmm. The, the you know, And I know people that run these homeless shelters in these facilities. And I mean, I'm making direct calls. I have a mother and three kids here and they need a place. Mm-hmm. The, the, the process be damned. We need mm-hmm. to put them in a place. These kids need to be out of this heat and they need to be taken care of. Mm-hmm. Well, we just don't have the room to put them. Make room. <laughs> you have a massive complex. Make mm-hmm. room. Put mm-hmm. a mattress down on the floor and get them into the, to the cool air and get them out. Mm-hmm. And it's and and I see the frustration of these officers that are dealing with this because these officers care. Not Mm -hmm. all police officers are just trying to get through the day and get home alive. Some actually care about what's going on in in their communities and in the area around them, but they get met with so much resistance Mm -hmm. and it's, it's resistance on both sides. You have Mm -hmm. some homeless people that choose that life. They want to be homeless, Mm -hmm. want to be on the streets doing drugs and, and living that life because they have no rules. They don't have any, they're not accountable to anything. Right. Uh, but then, then these are the same people that turn around and complain and, and cry about their life and their victimhood. 
-hmm. and and it's there needs to be and i think covid had a real big impact on the world and separated even more divided more of the compassionate nature of people and 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 so we need to and that, that that's my whole goal and what we need to do is is teach kindness and compassion again and and that should be a curriculum what they're teaching kids in school is is for all intents and purposes useless right mm-hmm. like like i still have never once in my life used pie or anything <laughs> right. and what they need to be teaching is kindness and compassion and empathy there should be empathy curriculums mindset coaching should be a a mandatory curriculum across the board teach people how to how to control this teach yeah. them how to process emotion teach them how to be accepting of other people epictetus famously said he's a, a an ancient stoic that famously said human beings are made for the sake of each other teach or tolerate and so if you're not going to take up the mantle of teaching then be tolerant you know and and the problem is is that most people that are intolerant that that are anti-gay or anti-trans or anti-this or anti-that it's your own self-worth that you're afraid of it's your own you might actually have some curiosity about some of that and you you you're afraid to admit that because we most times we're afraid of other people's opinions Mm -hmm. and that is the number one thing that stifles us from a life of success and happiness if you don't like your job quit yes but You'll have, people, you'll have people that say, well, I can't quit my job. My, you know, I have my wife and my kids and, and if they don't like it, that's not your problem. You can get another job. Listen, I'm miserable at my job. Did you know when it comes to bullying, I'm also an, uh, an ambassador for a nonprofit called Buddha Bully. And we mm-hmm. educate fifth, sixth, seventh graders on, on bullying, but we also teach parents. Mm-hmm. The parent that hates their job is more likely to have a kid that turns into a bully than parents that work 15 hours a day. The absence of the parent in the home working 15 hours a day is actually beneficial to kids because they see the ethic of hard work, right? Yeah. And, and, and the parent comes home happy, uh, fulfilled and satisfied and life is good. But the parent that comes home and complains about their job, complains about the environment, then the kid sees anger. The kid absorbs the unhappiness of the parent and then doesn't know how to process that emotion and lashes out on their peers. And that's Mm -hmm. how bullying comes into play. Mm -hmm. And so we got a lot of work to do. (laughs) We got a lot of work to do. There's a, but you know what? It starts with taking one step forward. And so I have uh, started my nonprofit, the Von Cleveland foundation, which is, all geared towards providing mindset coaching and personal development materials for marginalized people and people that are currently and previously incarcerated for free. As a mindset coach, I know the price that is involved in getting mindset coaching. It's expensive. It's not cheap. And the people that need it the most are the ones that couldn't even come close to affording it. Mm -hmm. And so with my foundation, I will raise funds to purchase books Ton, all the books that I know that will help Victor Frankel's Man's Search for Meaning, the John C. Maxwell series, the Fred Factor, the Likeability Factor. There's just so many beautifully written self-help books. And, and I will purchase the book and we will make deliveries to jails, to juvie halls, to 
uh, um, homeless institutions to places where the people need them. And not mm -hmm. everybody's going to use them. But if mm -hmm. one person in that institution uses that book and changes mm -hmm. their life, it's worth it. Right. And it what was, if you sat in a circle and had an open discussion about what they read? Boom. And we will. So that's the yeah. whole point of the Itopia Empowerment Center, uh, which will be the first phase of the Von Cleveland Foundation is we, we, we build a library, an empowerment library with all these books, and we will have speeches and discourses and open tables, round table discussions on these materials to help people not just learn it, but to sink it in and apply it to their life. And I think it's, it's, it's the best that I know how to do to help people learn how to take control of their, their life. Yeah. Oh and if my I God. can help somebody, awesome. Yes. And if it's just one person, so what? It's one person. That's it. I love that. It's be, it's people like you that keep me from going, is this world just full of a bunch of assholes? <laughs> <laughs> no, there's a lot of people out there that are trying to do the work to make it better for our future people. Yeah. And the unfortunate side is people love drama. They love yeah. because we've been so conditioned uh, to that, that you have influencers that constantly just go again on their hate Budweiser, hate trans people. Oh my God. Hate, I got caught up over a Bud hate, Light thing. You know, yes. hate, hate gay people, hate anybody that's not right wing Trump supporting, uh, you know, <laughs> hate anybody that thinks that Joe Biden is just a human being doing the best he can in the world too. And, <laughs> and, and, and people absorb that. And so the whole point of the morning choice, the show that I, I, I'm doing, and, and I'm, I'm finding that it's hard to be consistent with it because I'm so busy doing everything else. The whole point of that was to show that it takes just as much energy to look up good news as it does yeah. negative news. And, and the block button is the most powerful tool in your life. Block it. <laughs> I, you know, people are constantly asking me, did you see the latest Trump indictment? No, because no. I don't I don't watch it. I don't pay attention no. to any of it. I didn't know about anything that happens negative in the world. But I can tell you about the grandmas that are are counseling people on benches in Zimbabwe. I can tell you about the 12 year old little girl who has learned how to naturally cycle water and make purify water for people in India. I love it. Right? You don't know. You don't know about that because you're absorbing Real Housewives of Beverly Hills news. And I'm yeah. absorbing a plus news and good news network and positive.com news. And it takes just as much energy. So our minds work just like our bodies work. If you eat crap food, you're going to have a crap body. If yes. you absorb crap content, you're going to have a crap mindset and yes. you can, it's, it's your choice to change that. You can just as easily inject positive stuff into your brain every morning and your day will be set. You will think about that positive stuff that you saw in the morning all day. And you set yourself up for a winning mindset. And that's it. It's, it's that simple. Yes, it is. I haven't watched the traditional news that just loops on the stations since 2021. I choose my content and I choose nutritious content. Like you're saying, the little girl that created a filtration system for the people in India, that's the stuff I want to see. So where can people find your show, the positive news, and all that stuff. How can they follow you? 
Uh, well, you, the my first recommendation is just to Google Sonny Von Cleveland. I'm the only one in existence. Uh, <laughs> so there's there's no other Sonny Von Clevelands. And then you'll be able to find all social media from there. But oh. I mean, I'm just on social media, Sonny Von Cleveland. You can find me, Sonny Von Cleveland official on Instagram, uh, Mr. Von Cleveland, I believe on Facebook, uh, just Sonny Von Cleveland. And you know, there are, I have a ton of other profiles because when I first got out, I didn't know how the internet worked. I didn't realize how social media worked. And so I would create a Facebook and well, I don't like the way that this Facebook turned out. So I'm just going to delete it and start another one. And then you find out that it's like, you know, a freaking, it's like the stalker. It just doesn't go away. <laughs> like, well, how do you delete the damn thing? Well, well, you can't really. There's, and then you forget what email you used or the password, and it's like, well, I can't even get back in to delete it now that I know how to delete it. And it's just, well, now there's ten profiles out there. If somebody monthly was like, son of a, yeah. <laughs> and, and it just, it just is what it is, right? I take it on the chin, and I just, it, it's me, right? It's just my, my experience in life. I haven't been perfect. I've made mistakes. You know, I've done. I've done things that other people would probably even in, in the last 10 years, I've, I've done things that people would be like, I mean, you, I cheated on my, my son's mother. I was lost in a world of sex, drugs, and rock and roll in, in a, in a metal band. And, and I went from staring at four walls in a, in a cage most of my life to having screaming fans in, in, in arenas. Like that's, it's intoxicating. Right. And, and it, it can, it can, and it also goes to show that, learning self-mastery and learning wisdom and learning how to process emotion and, and self-improvement and bettering yourself doesn't make you infallible. It doesn't make you immune to temptation. It doesn't, it doesn't protect you from the experience of life, right? You, you still have the capability of making mistakes. You still have the capability of falling down. Uh, but as Rocky famously said, it's not about how many times you get knocked down. It's about how many times you get up exactly. and, and you, you have to forgive yourself. And it starts with forgiveness. Realize that nobody has a manual uh, to living life. Nobody, nobody comes with an instruction booklet, like a video game that says, this is how you do it. Yeah. Every, every, every culture has its differences, right? Every culture says that this is good and evil and then this is good and evil and then this is good and evil and so who's to say who's right and who's wrong mm -hmm. it's it's my firm belief that this experience is mine and mine alone this this birth to death is mine and it's yours and it's everybody who who learns it this is your experience and you get to be the author of your own destiny you get to determine what they're going to say about you at your funeral you know, you get to make that determination and it's, it's not on anybody else. And, and Victor Frankl was one of the most inspirational people in my life with his book, Man's Search for Meaning, because as I'm sitting in that, in that hole, you know, in a lost in a world of self-pity thinking how, you know, crappy my life was and how much a victim I am, I then start to read Victor Frankl's story. And this is a very successful Jewish man uh, who has a beautiful family and a beautiful business. And then one day Nazis kick the door in and they take him to Auschwitz and he is thrown into a concentration camp and everything is taken from him. He's watched mm -hmm. his family be brutally murdered. He's watched his friends be experimented on and exterminated. And the whole time he is smiling and inspiring people. 
You know what I mean? It's mm-hmm. when, when you can no longer control your environment, you have to control yourself. You know, you, you, if you can't change the environment, change your attitude. And, and he maintained that positivity and inspired so many. And I looked at that and I'm like, I don't have any room to cry about my life, right? It's no justification for the things that I've endured, for the things that I've perpetuated. The things that I've done to people are inexcusable. There's no excuse. Even my victimhood does not give me a, a, a right to victimize, right? And so I think that it should be a curriculum that everybody reads that. I think it should be mandatory reading material. Every yeah. year you're in school, you should have to do a, a synopsis on man's search for meaning every year. I think it's yeah. one of the most powerful books ever written. I'm definitely going to have to check that out because I do have a tendency to gravitate toward that time period and different publications of victim accounts from Auschwitz. And so I'm definitely going to check that out. Wow. It's a fantastic book. Yeah. Other than that, you can also go to um, heywhiteboy.com uh, and, and see uh, coaching and stuff from there. You can also go to itopiacoaching.com, which is my coaching company, uh, and see some of the resources we have available there. Um, and yeah, just just type Sonny Von Cleveland into anything. And it, awesome. Uh, so it's not hard to find you. <laughs> not, not hard to find. And you've given us such powerful nuggets. Do you have anything else you would like to share? No, just go forth and be kind. That's it. Kindness is your compass. When you make kindness your compass, life is yours, right? Your life is your choice. Every, Every single thing in life is a choice. Yeah, agreed. Thank you. Choose kindness. Yeah, choose kindness. Thank you so much, Sonny. You're very welcome. Thank you so much. Thank you for spending time listening to our conversation. If you enjoyed this and other episodes, please subscribe, like, and share so we can reach more listeners with our powerful messages. And stay tuned to hear about our affiliates and recommendations. They change from episode to episode.